Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. The Isle of Iona is a small island off the west coast of Scotland with a rich spiritual history. As early as the year 563, the isle was a site for a Celtic monastery. In the Middle Ages, it was the site of a Benedictine abbey, and over the centuries has attracted many thousands of people on their own pilgrim journeys. Today, the isle is the center of the Iona community, a dispersed Christian ecumenical community working for peace and social justice, rebuilding of community, and the renewal of worship. To learn more about the Iona community, we are joined today by the Reverend Kathleen Roney and the Reverend Matilda Tilly Chase. Reverend Kathleen L. Roney is a candidate for a Doctor of Ministry degree in Spirituality from the Theological School of Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. She's an ordained minister in the American Baptist Church, USA. She's been the director of chaplains for the Somerset County Jail since 1985 and has been the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Morristown for the last five years. She's a graduate of OASIS Program, Spiritual Direction for Spiritual Guides. She's in charge of the Wild Goose Programming of Iona, New World Foundation, and in that position, she recruits speakers, workshop leaders, and helps with setting up the workshops and publicity. Reverend Roney is currently an associate member of the Iona community. She serves on the board of both the Kirkridge Retreat Center and the Iona New World Foundation. The Reverend Matilda Chase is ordained in the Presbyterian Church, USA, and is currently serving the Olivet United Presbyterian Church in Easton, Pennsylvania, as their interim pastor. She serves on the board of Kirkridge Retreat and Study Center in Bangor, Pennsylvania, and works for the Iona Community New World Foundation as their U.S.-based membership secretary, as well as being an associate of the community. Prior to answering the call to ordained ministry, Reverend Chase worked in the field of international banking for almost 20 years. Welcome, both of you ladies, to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. That, that was a mouthful there. I'm interested in hearing perhaps the spiritual side of international banking perhaps later in the program. To begin, why don't you tell us about the Iona community history? Well, as you have mentioned, it was founded by St. Columba, and we just celebrated our 1,450th anniversary, which Tilly and I and many others were able to be on the island to celebrate. But I think the part that you're probably more interested in and is more interesting uh, at this point is our modern history, which is 75 years old. In 1938, Reverend George MacLeod, who was a pastor for the Church of Scotland, was very concerned about the poor, about the state of many churches in the British Isles, and very concerned about how spirituality was kind of in one camp and people's everyday life was in another. 
and he had spent some time on Iona. He knew about the history of it, and he decided to go there and to try to rebuild a community where people would see each other as more than just on Sunday, that there would be a working relationship with each other and a prayer commitment to each other and a peace and justice. So he took a group of ministers and a group of lay workers, actually dock workers mostly, and they went and lived there and they rebuilt the now abbey, which is now standing, and they had kind of a, a rhythm to their day of prayer and working, and they all shared the same thing. There was no hierarchy. The Pastors had to work just as much as the dock workers, and the dock workers had to pray just as much as the pastors. And that was the beginning of the modern community. In fact, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that the ministers were the people who had to work for the skilled craftsmen. So um, in some ways, it kind of turned things upside down for the pastors. Can you share a little bit more about that? I'm always interested in turning things upside down. Um, well, I think it was really interesting that um, George McLeod understood that, you know, pastors um, spend all this time in their studies and they, um, you know, people often think that pastors only work one day a week. And, um, and so it was an, a way to help the pastors understand what um, lay people and individuals who were not in the ministry, what their lives were like, and to um, also train the pastors on what it meant to be involved in physical labor because they were, you know, lugging around all these stones and and um, really doing the grunt work for those skilled people who were working on the on the abbey. And George was very concerned that. The theology, which was kind of uh, very heady, come down to the common person that the pastors would understand that these dock workers in many times were in tremendous poverty. Mm. They were working for peanuts, that they were worried about their families, and that high theological ideas is not where they needed to be. They really needed to know that there was a grace and a God that cared and that the church cared. And in those days, they surely didn't feel that. Thank you for sharing that. There's a uh, long history of uh, sort of high church, low church, um, going way back, I'm sure, in the beginning, um, back in the 6th century when Iona began, we were looking at a, an ancient form of, of the Catholic Church on some level over there, which, of course, was out of the hands of the common people for a long time until, uh, basically, I think, until the printing press, for one, uh, when when the Bible could be then no longer scribed, but actually printed on mass f- uh, for the people and changed to the vernacular language. Uh, so this is sort of an ongoing revelation, I think, for the church. Now, how did you both find and get involved with Iona? What drew you d- to the community? Why this particular community? Well, when I was in seminary, um, I read about St. Columba, I didn't realize the community still existed, but I was fascinated by some of his ideas of the common person, his ideas of women, his ideas of sharing faith and grace beyond the walls of a church. And um, I didn't think much of it after I graduated, and I came here to this part of the country to take the job as a chaplain. And I ended up coming to Kirkridge as a retreat, and I walked into the building, and there was a big sign for a pilgrimage to Iona, and I almost fell over. <laughs> I said, I have to go on that. And, of course, it was filled. 
But I put my name on the list, and I was very happy that I got to go, and I was very blessed that John Oliver Nelson, who was the founder of Kirkridge and also a very close friend of uh, George McLeod, was also on that trip, and we got to be good friends, and I got to see Iona through his eyes and through the eyes of George McLeod, uh, though he was not on the island at the time, but John shared that with me. And I was fascinated by the fact that there... Everyone went by first names. There was not a hierarchy. There was just this sense of we were all one in God's grace. And I just found that so refreshing and, and so uplifting that I um, that I have to learn more about this community and I have to come back again. And I've been back again and again and again. And for me, um, and this kind of gets back to your question about where is spirituality in international banking, um, there isn't much. And um, and so after 20 years in banking, I answered a call that had been placed on my life probably when I was a teenager. And um, during the time that I was in seminary, the pastor of the congregation where I was worshiping at that time, and this is about the mid-1990s, had gone to Iona, and when she came back, she brought back with her liturgy and music that had been written by John Bell for the Wild Goose public publications. And I was so fascinated with it. And, and I just so much appreciated the way that John Bell writes liturgy that I began to buy books that were written by him and other members of the community. And so that was my first introduction to the community. But more recently, um, Kathleen has kind of pulled me along with her. Um, my husband and I went with her to um, Scotland three years ago, and, and that was really what grabbed my attention. And I think one of the things that was so important to me was the fact that much of the ministry that's done by the Iona community is actually done in Glasgow. And so being introduced to the ministries, um, my husband and I went to a homeless shelter and spent a day before we actually went to the island of Iona. And to see the impact of the Iona community in people's lives um, as they tried to do ministry in different places was just so inspiring to me that um, I wanted to be a part of, of what was going on. And, and so that's, that's how I've come to the community. Thank you, Tilly and Kathleen. The The website, for example, is very extensive in terms of uh, sharing principles, ideals, goals, uh, work. And so can you share a little now about what exactly inspired you so much about the community? What areas of concern does the Iona community focus on? Well, for me, social justice has always been a very important issue. And in that time of transition between being a banker and uh, becoming a pastor, um, one of the things that I did in New York City at the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church was I established a program that was a ministry to people in the work workplace. And um, when I went to Iona, I discovered that that was so similar to what was most important to George McLeod, the intersection of people's lives and their work and, and their faith, and, um, and that had been my story as well. And I was very moved by the diversity of the community. We have members or associate members all over the world, and there is, wherever they are, there is work being done in, in the name of 
of God and they're feeding the hungry and clothing and immigration and all kinds of things that I don't see the the church necessarily getting involved in, that the community is very good about getting in the middle of it and getting their hands dirty and really being there to make people's lives better, and that really moved me. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. Tilly, can I go back to uh, something you were just sharing? Um, I've spoken with many folks on the show, obviously, over the years, uh, different traditions around the world, um, different journeys, and everyone unique. For example, people who have you know, spent like you a, a, a full career in, uh, in, a, in a corporate or banking financial setting uh, and have become pastors since. Now, do you consider, um, it's sort of a big picture question, I've always thought the world is transformed one heart at a time. So here in, on the one hand are people who are leaving the industries to follow a spiritual life path. Do you also think that there is another way of transformation and, and that is for those industries to slowly become transformed in terms of, of how they perceive uh, people, wealth, finance, and such? Well, it's interesting that you asked me that question because as I was preparing to go into the ministry and going to seminary, there were individuals who actually challenged me to consider staying in the workplace um, and, and doing ministry in the workplace. And to be really honest, and maybe it was because I was working in an international bank in New York City, I could not imagine how that could happen in a way that would be faithful. Um, and, and so I really believed that I needed to leave the workplace to be more effective in terms of being able to transform lives. But that because I had been in the corporate environment, that I could speak from that experience to people. And when we talk about the workplace and spirituality, of course, this is so much of where the where the rubber meets the road, as it were. For example, I, I used to write a column called Soul Proprietors, S-O-U-L, <laughs> for people who found a way to better marry their personal beliefs and their, and their daily work. Um, there are protections, you know, at least in the United States, there are, you know, freedom of religion protections that do allow for some form of spirituality to happen during a person's work day. Um, but how how did you encounter it in your work with uh, the Presbyterian Church there in New York? Well, um, what we what we did was we offered um, times both at the beginning of the workday, like around seven thirty in the morning, and then at lunchtime, we would actually have um, periods when people would come to the church, and we would do Bible studies or discussion groups on issues that were important to people in their workplace, and. I can remember there was one gentleman who was a part of one of those groups that met at lunchtime, and and he struggled mightily at a point in his career when he was being asked by his management to lay people off, and he knew how difficult that was going to be for them economically and and spiritually and and in so many different ways, and and we struggled with him and we walked that walk with him and tried to support him as he had to make those difficult decisions and and the irony was that 6 months later he was laid off and um and so we continued to walk with him and and be supportive to him as he experienced the very thing that he had struggled so much 
with other people's lives. Mm. Thank you so much, uh, Tilly, for sharing that. Now, Kathleen, can you tell us about Iona today? How dispersed is the community? How large is the community in terms of numbers? Well, Tilly may have to help me with the numbers, <laughs> but uh, because that's her job. But we're everywhere in the world. Our membership goes everywhere. We don't have a, uh, uh, obviously, a good many of them are in Europe, but we have people in Africa and the Middle East and Orient and everywhere. And the reason we know that is because we have a prayer book and everybody's name that are members and associate members is in that prayer book. And every single day we pray for the particular people that are on the prayer list for that day. So even though I may never get to meet them, I kind of know about them because I pray for them every day and wherever they are in the world. Now, Tilly's going to give you the numbers because she actually (laughs) goes out for you. Um, Currently, there are approximately 270 members. And the way the community has worked is that um, the members have always been required to come together, oftentimes either in Glasgow or on the island of Iona or perhaps some other place in the British Isles to meet at least twice a year. And so most of the people around the world are only allowed to be associates. And there are 350 friends and associates in the United States. And then there are another 700 associates around the world. So um, that's, that's what we are currently. But There seems to be some movement within the community to expand the understanding of what it means to be a member so that there can be people who are members um, in other parts of the world where they might not be able to come back to Scotland twice a year to meet. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, I'm all in favor. (laughs) I'm being over here on the coast of Maine. That's actually um, what my doctorate work is on, is the family group and membership in Iona. With their permission, um, I took that on because I felt it would be important for the community everywhere to look at that. So they've been monitoring my work, and I've been in constant contact with them as we look at those issues and how it would change us and them. Oh, yes, and it's so pertinent today because relationships are being reordered, literally, just because of the technological breakthroughs of being able to communicate and see each other and you know around the world in real time. It has made a real difference, and in fact, we tried a, a week ago to have um, Peter McDonald, who is the current leader of the Iona community, join us by Skype for a meeting. <laughs> But unfortunately, the weather on the western um, coast of Scotland was pretty nasty, and he wasn't able to get to a place where he could get access to the Internet. So he missed our meeting. Now, can you tell us about the New World Foundation and its work? Um, I can. Um, The New World Foundation was established as a not-for-profit foundation in the United States. I think it was probably in the 60s. Um, and it was a result of George McLeod. He was am- amazing at being able to raise funds, and he was still trying to complete the um, the clo- cloister area of the abbey, and he he was looking for funds, and and so the New World Foundation was initially established as a way for people in the United States to contribute to the construction on the island of Iona. 
but it's kind of morphed into an organization still that um, <laughs> collects funds that are that go back to um, Scotland and support the work that is done by the Iona community. But just as we talked about the the changing of the attitudes about membership, it's beginning to um, be an organization that is also supporting associate members in the United States in, in the work that they are doing here. And um, we have a couple of different groups that are meeting together almost as family groups, which is the main way that people and members in uh, the British Isles come together. And, and so the New World Foundation is, um, is being transformed by the desire of people to be more involved in the community in the United States. And just last week we had John Bell here at Kirkridge, and we supported the New World Foundation, of course, supported that. And we had 18 people that came together to look at all kinds of different issues um, of how they live out their spirituality in this, in this world and in, in America. And I'll give a plug for the New World Foundation. <laughs> Their website is www.iona-n, as in new, w as in world, f as in foundation.org. And on that website, um, you'll see the kinds of things that are happening in the United States, but also there are there is a place on that website where you can get information about becoming an associate member. Thank you for that. Now, I just wanted to go back there to George McLeod. Now, I guess the restoration of the abbey, we're talking about the original Celtic 6th century site. No, we're no. talking about the Benedictine site. Very good. Abbey building, however you want to discuss it, was made of straw and mud, and right. it long since um, has disappeared. We do have a, a, an, an idea of where it was, and the Benedictine Abbey is somewhat in that same area, but the actual remains of any buildings he had are long since gone. But the interest in restoring uh, this, the building, was that, can you speak to what his, his interest was in that? Was it to be a place for the local people to go to in terms of prayer, retreat, worship? What was his interest in that? I think a big part of it was that he wanted a project that the common person and the laity could do together. And he saw that as a place to do it, to rebuild the abbey. And he also, in some respects, now I'm speaking for Georgia, he never told me this, I'm just guessing from the writings and my research, that he wanted them away for a while where they, they could be on their own and form their own conversations and their own sense of rhythm of the days without being in the middle of a busy city or being in the middle where other things would distract them. In the beginning, it was just the men that came. Their families did not come with them. In fact, George didn't really want the women there. <laughs> but, he, what, but what about all those thoughts of St. Columba <laughs> about women? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> that's an interesting question. But, you know, the first woman who became a leader of the Iona community, um, Kathy Galloway, she tried to come into a, a meeting, and I don't remember what year this was, probably in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. Um, and George literally told her to leave. So um, I think George was one of those people who kind of had a hard time uh, learning to make space for women, though I think without the women, even in the early years, um, the Iona community would not be 
would not be in existence today if the women hadn't made their contributions. You know, we're about halfway through the program already, ladies, so I'm going to take a short break for a program ID, and please just stay on the line. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue the conversation about the Iona community with the Reverend Kathleen Roney and the Reverend Matilda Tilly Chase. Stay with us. i 
us all move and live and grow in you and you in me. Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with the Reverend Kathleen Roney and the Reverend Matilda Chase of the Iona Community. So as we come back to the show now, can you please share with us about the rule of the Iona community? There are five of them at the moment. Daily prayer and Bible reading, sharing and accounting for the use of resources, including money, planning and accounting for the use of our time, action for peace and justice in our society, and meeting with each other and accounting to each other. And they are getting ready to add a sixth one probably in the next couple of months, which has to do with carbon footprint and living green. Can you tell us about, because you were just mentioning social justice, can you please tell us about the Iona Community Justice, Peace, and Integrity of Creation commitment? What's that all about? Well, I think one of the things that... Um, that it, reflects what peace and justice is and why it's important to the Iona community is that many members of the Iona community have been very involved in uh, nuclear, nuclear disarmament for, for a long time. And it was something that was very important to George McLeod. And in fact, he would go to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland every year just railing about how um, nuclear um, deterrence needed to take place, and uh, and it got to be kind of a joke in the General Assembly that he would show up every year um, continuing to talk about that. And what was interesting was that the year that um, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland finally um, adopted a statement on um, nuclear deterrence was the one year that he did not speak on the subject. I guess uh, another really big issue that is um, part that is important to the Iona community in terms of peace and justice is the whole question of immigration and um, refugees. That you know, as as an example, the Syrian conflict and all of the people who are leaving Syria and going to other countries that border Syria and living in um, in tents in communities that you know, do not really support their lives. And, and, and that's an area in which the Iona community and members of the Iona community are really committed to trying to make a difference. And also in with that, of course, is the financial. There's a very big concern that peace and justice is about saying that there are no hungry children and that there are no people that go to bed hungry anywhere in the world. And so uh, we talk a lot about consumerism and about how we need to be clear that there's enough for everyone. It's the way we use our resources that are not correct, and we need to make it possible for everyone to have enough food and enough shelter to live a dignity life. Hmm. And that's where your spirituality and banking start to come together. <laughs> exactly. Now, let, let's, I think we've explored some of the working principles here of the Iona community. Um, can you share with us about the concept of the family group? Where did that come from, and what does it do? How does it serve community? Well, it goes back to George um, when he was on the island 
they gathered together in small groups because there were too many of them to all gather together to be accountable. So he put them in small groups, which he called family groups. And then the job was to account to each other, to hold each other accountable. Because as you know, in our world, it's not easy to live a dedicated life to anything, particularly when you're living in a consumer environment. So it was his hope that these families would help individuals live the kind of life, peace and justice, spirituality, all that kind. And as women began to be involved and as families began to be involved, they also became part of the family group. And it's still the nucleus of the community. Being a part of the family group is where you really see the community as its strongest, as taking care of of each other and working through and struggling with huge issues of what's going on in their community that they can help change and they can be a part of. Especially now that we're getting the carbon footprint, I know that some of the groups are beginning to look at that and talk about how do we deal with that in a community that doesn't want to look at it. And another thing that I think is really important about the family groups is they meet on a regular basis and oftentimes will share a meal together. Um, some of the time I think they also share um, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper together um, and and that's the place where they also hold each other accountable for how they're using their time. Um, you know, it's really easy, especially in this day and time, to kind of get sidetracked with, um, you know, with our cell phones and playing games on our cell phones. And, and it's really talking about making good use of our time in a way that is responsible. And, and there's that same attitude about the way that we use our money. But one of the things that I discovered that I think is really interesting is that the family groups are just as likely to say to someone, you know, you have five kids and you have this small home and the first thing you need to do is take, take care of your family. And so that family may be told that they shouldn't be putting as much of their money into um, the church or into other um, organizations that they might be supporting, that the thing that they're most responsible for is caring for their own family. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a way of helping one another look at the way we're living our lives and, and to be both responsible to God, but also to be responsible to ourselves. Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that silence is a really important part of my life. And it's hard for me to put silence into my life. But if I'm meeting with a family group who knows that's an issue for me, and they ask me questions about, well, how are you doing with finding silence in your life? That keeps it in the forefront of my mind as something that I need to attend to. So those are the kinds of things that are going on in a family group that, that really support the whole idea of being a community that cares for one another. And that's really where we get to know each other. Uh, we don't want it to sound like it's all hard work. We have a lot of laughter and a lot of good fellowship in our family groups. And it's a chance for us to get to know each other, to understand what the needs are, where we can go to our family group for help and prayer and support, as well as laughter and relaxation. 
Thank you both um, for your for your sharing uh, answers there. Now, the word accountable or accountability came up several times in in this conversation. So, I wanted to ask you: How is accountability handled? I mean, literally, in terms of the uh, the exchange among family group. Different rules have different ways of accounting, and I'm going to let Tilly do the financial one. But many times it's just calling another member saying, how are you doing? Um, you know, I, I know you're struggling with such and such, and I just gave, want to give you a call today and, and, and see how that's going. Or maybe it's challenging someone to look at an issue they don't want to look at and they need to look at. Maybe it's saying, you know, you need to take some time off. You need to take a day of vacation or take a day of rest or take care of your physical body. You can't be always on the go. They do that to me a lot. That's the one I get hit with. Um, So that there's a lot of good sharing and good caring about the totality of the person and the totality of the person's life. And we account many times verbally with each other. Many of us connect during the month. We meet once a month. Uh, At least most groups do. But we communicate via all kinds of things during the month. Now, Tilly's going to explain to you the financial one because that's the one that we have the best placement and pen and paper for that one. One of the things, there's actually a, a worksheet that's, um, that people are invited to fill out that identifies what their income is, what all of their expenses are, um, and, and then, and it's only after you've looked at income and expenses you have disposable income, and it's that money that people are called into accountability about how they use it. And that is, for members at least, something that is reported to the leader of the community once a year. And and another part of that accountability is to write a letter to the leader on an annual basis explaining um, how they have supported the rule and how they have lived their lives out in in this past year and and where the difficulties have been. I think another thing that's important about the family groups is that we really try to create a place of safety Mm -hmm. and confidentiality so that people can come into the group and know that they can be totally honest about what's going on in their lives and that that's going to be respected by the other people in the group. Kathleen and I are just beginning to meet with a group of people. We've met um, twice now, and we're planning a third meeting. And and we're still working on how are we going to be together so that we can make sure that we are meeting in a way that is safe for everybody. Now, I'm I'm sure a lot of people might say, oh, my goodness, why would I need to report, you know, my financial statements and things like this um, uh, to anyone, you know, in a in a community? But there must be a, 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 a purpose in terms of right use of resources. And are they doing financial worksheets as individual families or as a family group? As, indi- as individual families is how they do it. Let me address something there. In some respects, there's a freedom because where in my life, outside of my family group or the small group of Iona people, can I actually talk about my struggle with consumerism? In my world, where I live in New Jersey, they would think you were crazy because there are more malls here than anything else. And everyone is about consumerism. I I shouldn't say everyone, but it's, it's a high priority around here. And yet, 
I can be in a group of people who that isn't their main goals, what they have or what the newest craze is, and I can share with them and be free with them and feel like I'm on the same page or say, I'm having a struggle with that. You know, I, I'm i spending money on things that perhaps I should do something else with or I should be giving to the poor and I'm not, or maybe I'm giving too much and I need to be called into accountability with that. So it's a place to really help when other people aren't looking at those issues. Um, now, within the family group, if it's discovered, as you said before, like if someone has five kids, perhaps they need to focus more on, on just raising the family as opposed to, you know, a lot of charitable contributions. Do any other members in the family group ever help other members in the family group? Yes, and that's that's an individual decision with groups and Sometimes we even help other members that we know about. You know, we, of course, we're very careful about somebody's identity and we don't want to embarrass anyone, but there have been times that we've done that not only, not only with money, but with support for all kinds of other things, uh, calling someone to give them encouragement, um, just being supportive when, I, when I've been doing the software work. I've gotten many calls and emails from not only my own family group, but from all over wishing me luck, wanting to know what they could do to help. Um, that kind of thing. We have a member right now that's quite ill, uh, has family members that are ill, and people are assisting him. So it's it's a way of getting to know what the needs are and not being intrusive, but helping. Hmm. And another thing that um, that happens is that, of course, being a member means that we are contributing money to the community, and some of that money is actually set aside so that it can be provided to families if they have um, really significant needs or for members in the British Isles if they're unable to come up with enough money to come to the um, annual meetings there are funds that are available to help them offset their travel expenses so um, you know it, it really is about um, providing for one another um, the, the the things that individuals need. And, of course, for some people it's money, but for other people it may be something um, that's not quite so um, obvious, you know, that, that they need support or prayers or something like that. Well, thank you both for uh, sharing about that aspect of, uh, of the uh, life of the Iona community. But uh, it's interesting because, for example, uh, in the Book of Acts, I think, uh, the original group of disciples uh, shared everything. And there's, there's an, a pretty extensive comment on that, that they, they shared everything, they worked together, they helped each other out in tangible ways like this. Um, so it brings me to my next question, which is that the community is described as an ecumenical Christian community. Can you speak to the ecumenical aspect of Iona and how does that manifest? Actually, I'm glad you asked that question because I was afraid we weren't going to get to make that point. But, you know, the, the Iona community has never had the intention of replacing uh, people's relationship with an organized church. Um, the Iona community is not a, a church. The Iona community is not a church, but what it does do is it enables individuals to um, serve God in any way that that they want to in their own unique way, and, and that might 
be related to the church that they belong to, which could be Church of Scotland, or it could be Presbyterian, or Episcopalian, or or maybe it's Buddhist. Um, but it doesn't have to be related to church membership either. Um, and that's a piece of what the Iona community, how the work of the community gets done, is people have particular passions in their own uh, settings, and, and that's how they do the, the peace and justice work that they do. In my own ex example, my congregation is looking at updating our, our kitchens so that we can begin to provide free meals for uh, people in our community. Um, in fact, we've discovered that 80% of the children that attend the school that is across the street from our church qualify for free breakfast and lunches. And so clearly there's a need in our community for food for people. And so our church is doing that. That's part of my work as the Iona community toward peace and justice. If we go back to uh, George McLeod's original idea, one of his concerns was that the church had lost its connection to the average person. He would have said average man. I'm going to say average person. That there was a big disconnect between what happened on Sunday and what happened the rest of the week. And so one of the good things about the island community is we are trying to get that gap to go away so that we can understand that spirituality is 24-7. However you live your life, that, that is where God is with you. And that is your life. <laughs> that is your life, right. <laughs> Thank you so much for addressing that because uh, that is true. There is a tendency, even though there's a church on every corner uh, in, in, in the country, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that church goes beyond that one hour or two hours on Sunday. And the, the challenge really is to, to bring that kind of joy and transformation to everything we do. To, some might say to turn everything to a prayer. Uh, and and I really appreciate that you bring in, you know, that it's not only ecumenical Christian, but that there are people of other faiths uh, exactly. entirely who can basically kind of add this on as, as a practice to help develop no matter where they are. One of our prayers in our prayer books that is gathered and scattered, there we are, and that God is with us where we are gathered and scattered. And another thing that's in our prayer book that, always kind of sends a chill down my back is is each day we pray as Kathleen had said earlier for specific people who are part of the community but at the end of that prayer we include this line which says may they not fail you nor I fail them and and that's that for me is really what reminds me every day that I want to be sure that I pray for these people because there's an expectation that I will. And I, I really appreciate that uh, as well, that and I not fail them. Uh, that, that makes it real, you know, what our commitment is to each other uh, in, in taking care of each other. Also on our island, we don't really have a hierarchy. I mean, obviously we have a leader and other things, but one of the prayers in our prayer book is that the person who is leading it confesses their sins, not individual sins, but that they have failed, and then the community, of course, says they are forgiven, and then the community asks forgiveness, so that we're all on common ground. We see God's grace as a common ground, not one person being higher than the other, no matter who they are, education, money, whatever, we're all the same in God's grace, and that's very important to personally for me. Mm. 
a part of a community that sees it that way. Mm. Thank you so much. Tilly, did you want to add something? Um, not on that, that specifically, but if we're near the end of our time together, I would like to just add that um, Kathleen and I, on a regular basis, lead pilgrimages from Kirkridge Retreat Center to different places. And in um, April of 2014, we will be leading a group to Italy, and our pilgrimage is in the footsteps of St. Francis and St. Benedict. So we will be going to sites that are connected to those two saints who had a real clear sense of what it meant to be community and also a real clear sense of peace and justice. And then in September of 2015, we're leading a group back to Iona again. We try to go to Iona at least every other year, and we'll be leading a a (laughs) pilgrimage um, trip to Iona um, in 2015. And people can find that information either on the Kirkridge um, website, which is kirkridge.org, or they can find it also on the New World Foundation website. And Oasis also leads tours through us to um, Holy Sites and to Iona, and you can find that. I believe I emailed you their um, website. Yes, and as we near the end of the interview, I do want to let listeners know that all your website and contact info will be posted shortly on GodspeedInstitute.com. And also, you might I think you might enjoy my latest book. It's called Inspired Relationships, and one of the chapters is on Francis and Claire of Assisi. Oh, yeah. Um, Yes. <laughs> yes, that's my that's 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 where I come from in terms of uh um study and uh experience. Um it's a book that explores the transforming relationships between four different pairs of male and female saints in history. And of course Francis and Claire are right up there. <laughs> we were just talking about we were of course getting ready for this and Tilly and I were looking at stuff and I said, So where is Claire? We're not finding enough about her. So now this is a great answer. Oh, I'll be I'll be able to answer that for you um uh shortly. <laughs> but um in the meantime, I just wanted to thank you so much for being on the program today and for sharing about Iona and all of your work all over the world and how uh, caretaking and inspiring and compassionate it is. Thank you so much for having us. We've en- we've enjoyed it and uh, I hope someday you can Travel to Iona and see it, and if you're ever in our area, that you will come and visit us at Kirkridge or Oasis. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much, and uh, blessings on your work. Blessing on yours, and on the book. Yes, about the book. My latest is called Inspired Relationships, Seven Saints, Real Life Lessons on How to Live, Love, and Work. And as I mentioned, these are the real-life interactions between uh, male and female saints in history, some very famous spiritual luminaries who actually knew each other, worked with each other, and helped to inspire each other to become the people we know today. And two of those are Francis and Claire of Assisi. I am your go-to on Francis and Claire. And a little bit here from the book. Um, Although Francis and Claire lived during the medieval period in Italy, they experienced many of the same challenges we face today. 
While they did not have the presence or omnipresence of electronic media and communications, they did grow up with the seemingly perpetual issues of war and conflict both away and at home, the social, physical, and deeply spiritual struggle of those who have and those who have not, and the expectations of family and society. Money was important, status was important, appearance was important, clothes were important. Finally, at the center of their town and the storm of typical teen pressures was the grand and stalwart footing of Mother Church and a way of living that would one day leave Francis feeling hollow, searching for new meaning. Youth is a time of great quests of all kinds, and particularly between the ages of 17 and 22. It's a time of reaching, when we stretch our boundaries, push envelopes, experiment, and learn who we are in relation to the world around us. It's also a deeply symbolic period of engagement between our emerging self and our origin, God. We feel the exciting onset and power of creation, freedom, faith, and life's adventure. Everything takes on enormous meaning. The grades we seek, the sports we play, the dreams we have, the colors we wear, the music we love, the friends we collect, the hobbies we enjoy, even the way we practice signing our name. All these things seem to identify us, at least for a time. This is also a peak period of spiritual questing when young people initiate their adult faith journey by questioning their belief systems as well as those of their parents and others in authority. It's no coincidence that many who enter the religious life do so at this age. Claire was 18 when she answered her call and Francis in his mid-twenties. Late adolescence and young adulthood are periods of inner sculpting of taking the experiences and icons of one's childhood and shaping them into the stepping stones of adult spirituality, paving the first pathway on which we will stand as we leave our childhood and enter society. Also at this time in history, Francis and Claire uh, come to us from the uh, 12th century and uh, early 13th. Chivalry ran deeply in the consciousness of both Claire and Francis. Claire had seven knights in her family, and Francis was becoming known for his exploits as a warrior. As he grew, Francis came to have the same dreams of knighthood and battle as any other young man, dreams of glory and riches and conquest of men and women. It was this life to which he aspired for many years. Thomas of Celano, the first official biographer of Francis and Clare, would write that it was in this manner that Francis of Assisi literally wasted the first 25 years of his life. However, the dreams and goals of chivalry would not leave Francis and Clare in their lifetime. Instead, something would happen that would lead them to redefine and revision chivalry, transforming its image of status, service, and the lady for whom one dares to give all. The knight would no longer be on horseback, in armor, a powerful and armed conqueror. He would stand on the earth, unshod, poor, the embodiment of compassion. The lady would no longer be the privileged princess, representing wealth and earthly beauty, but would become Lady Poverty, the song of one soul, unadorned. This from Inspired Relationships, from the chapter on Francis and Claire, 
of Assisi. Inspired Relationships is available at the Godspeed Institute website, godspeedinstitute.com. It is also available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and in hard copy as well as Kindle and Nook versions. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again, or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at GodspeedInstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey. <laughs>